Now this morning, First Baptist Church of Vegas. <laughs> I've been watching the Vegas Golden Knights. As you know, I'm a hockey fan. They're not supposed to be in the Stanley Cup Finals, especially in their inaugural year in the NHL. But against all the odds, the team from the gambling capital of the world, a place that labels itself as Sin City, slugged it out with Washington in a, in a bitterly contested final. And on last uh, Thursday, the Golden Knights lost to the Washington Cap Capitals. But there is a First Baptist Church in Vegas. And I think that after looking at their webpage, you can find Jesus by just going to their webpage. I thought they did an exceptionally good job. But that's not really the church I want to talk about today. But I wanted to, to throw that idea of Las, of Las Vegas there so that you have a point of comparison. Let me read from Acts chapter 18 for you today. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. That's the place. There he met a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius, who was emperor at the time, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the, gen to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Amen. Well, Paul arrived in Corinth fresh from the laughter and scorn of the philosophers on Mar Mars Hill. And some versions call it the Areopagus. Athens. He had walked into a forest of idols and it had been provoked that so many people followed things that were vain and paid their homage, unaware that Jesus had even died to bring people, people to God. And I think if you look around our culture today, the same thing is true. He challenged the Jews in the synagogue and, and the philosophers in the marketplace until they decided he ought to be given a hearing on the, Are on the Areopagus, which is really the hill of Mars. And Paul drew on the power of his excellent education. He summoned his powers of reason and logic, but there was blindness to the gospel. People just couldn't seem to grasp it. 
He'd been laughed out of, out of Athens, and he was labeled as a, as a babbler, a seed picker, named for a little bird who went around just picking up ideas, stole the ideas of another person Paul was, was accused of, and then promoting them as his own ideas. And it must have been sad for him because he stood among the intellectual elite of the world, the greatest center of learning that was around in that point of time, and he introduced Jesus as the Son of God. He told of his death and his resurrection. And at this point, the intelligentsia of that time dismissed Paul with a mere wave of their hand. He had tried to meet their arguments with the power of the gospel but the philosophers of the day were unconvinced. All was not lost because there were a few converts in Athens. But in some respects, you can look at it and say, it, Paul struck defeat there. People hung on to their vain wisdom while the grace of God became a matter just to jeer at. They didn't get the message, and Paul must have, must have felt the bitterness of defeat one of the very few times in his ministry. Now, in chapter 18, Paul's made the short trip out of Athens to ancient Greece's most important trade city. He arrived in the place that was essentially the connecting link between Rome, which was then the capital of the entire world, so to speak, and the east. When Paul arrived there, he saw a large, bustling city, two seaports there, always a commercial and trade, trade center. Corinth was a very prosperous place, famous for bronze and pottery and shipbuilding, and this going back to 800 years even before Jesus. Paul couldn't have helped but notice, towering above the ancient marketplace was the Temple of Apollo. Fluted Doric columns, 24 feet tall. The city, it rose 1,500 feet above, above the city, so he knew where the center of worship was. To the south was the Acropolis, or the city the citadel, and from there the Acropolis at Athens, which is 73 kilometers away, was easily seen. Inside of Corinth was the infamous Temple of Aphrodite, or Venus, located on the top of a fortified hill. The pagan temple had 1,000 religious prostitutes who poisoned the city's morals, poisoned the city's culture. Corinth was a melting pot for 500,000 people. Same population of Newfoundland jammed into one small city called Corinth. And that's what it was like when Paul, Paul, Paul arrived. I chose the title I did because gamblers love to congregate in Corinth. Every two years as well, the city would host the Ithmian Games and Betting became a favorite pastime. Athletes flooded into the city to train and compete, and they became a part of the gambling establishment as well. There were merchants and sailors in Corinth anxious to work, to work the docks, slaves that had been freed but no place to go, roamed the streets of Corinth day and night, and prostitutes, male and fe female, were abundant. People from Rome, the rest of Greece, from Egypt and Asia, all of the Mediterranean world loved Corinth because it had no standards. No, no one to put any restrictions on your thoughts or your behavior. That's the way the city lived. 
It's the kind of place where what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. That's the whole point, I think. See, the sensitivities that Paul would have had when he walked in there with his strict Jewish upbringing must have put all of his senses on high alert. He'd never seen anything like it, possibly. But as he walked, he was offended by all of the things that were going on around him. And I can imagine him praying for this city as his own morals and his own faith were assaulted by what went on or what went on inside the city. Like most people of the ancient world, he'd heard of Corinth. But now to be there, he was shocked by its debauchery. And Paul very quickly came to a conclusion. It's only the power of Christ that can change a place like this. Is filled with disgust, I would think, from the Corinthian depravity. But Paul was gripped by another emotion. When you read his letters, you grab it. What a test case this would be for the gospel. If the Apostle Paul could plant a church in Corinth, it would serve as a witness that there was no place where it could not be planted. He had met the risen Lord on the Damascus Road and realized that the blind people of Corinth were no more blind than he, he had been. He had been a zealous Pharisee, but he had persecuted the church even at, point, at some points to death. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean world. It was the place where every conceivable vice could be found and where every perversion could be indulged in and sometimes you could even do that as religious worship. How do you plant a church that's dedicated to a holy God? How do you plant a church that's dedicated to absolute truth in this cesspool of humanity? How do you establish, if I could use the phrase, a beachhead for Jesus Christ at the very gates of hell? That's Corinth's challenge. And Paul went into action. We don't know how he contacted them, but he discovered a Christian couple, two people, Aquila and Priscilla, who moved, from Cor who moved to, to Corinth from Rome as a result of the Roman emperor expelling all of the Jews out of Rome, and history tells us this was done. They would have been in good company with Paul since he'd been already thrown out of half the towns of Asia Minor, Paul sort of caused a riot everywhere he, he went. So they were also tent makers like Paul. And the three of them went into business together. But Paul was not just trying to make a living in this moral sewer. Every Sabbath, the scripture tells us, he headed for the Jewish synagogue and reasoned with the Jews there and tried to preach that Jesus was the Christ, much like I do, perhaps much like you do week after week. You live like Jesus is Christ. Sometimes you even get to say it. Silas and Timothy arrived a little later from Ma Macedonia, and with them came good news from the church in Thessalonica, and they brought some money with them, so Paul was able to quit his job and go full-time in ministry, stopped his leather working. Didn't take long before they tossed him out of the synagogue in that town, 
And Paul, like, like Nehemiah did in one of our Wednesday Bible studies last year, he shook out his clothes, which was common as a symbol of disgust, and washing your hands of something, and said, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. And so he departed from one place, and he said, from now, now on, I'll take it to the Gentiles who were regarded as dogs, goyim. Paul already had a great effect upon the synagogue. And rather than stay, stay there, he moved next door. Scriptures I read to you this morning says he went to, he went to the home of Titius Justus, a believer. And then someone else came and joined him, a man by the name of Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. He came in and became a Christian. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we're told that the household of Stephanus also believed. So they formed the nucleus of a little church on the, free, on the freeway to hell. I call them the First Baptist Church of Corinth. You see, the only philosophy in Corinth is a familiar one. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It thrived on a lifestyle that opened the floodgates of uncensored, unbridled sensuality in the Las Vegas of the first century. The only thing I can't find in Corinth that I can find in modern equivalents of it is Elvis. There's no Elvis Presley right back there. Now maybe there's someone who resembled him, but history just doesn't record it. See, it's one thing to persuade religious people. They already come with a respect for God. The synagogue members had memorized large portions of scripture and they were already most moral than most people. But bringing the lost of Corinth in was quite a different matter. When Paul wrote of his experiences in Corinth, he unlocked the key to ministry to the people of the Las Vegas of the ancient world. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. So it was with me, brothers and sisters, and here's our key for ministry today. As it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you with weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And it worked. Corinth was a proud, proud city. They were proud of their wealth. They were proud of the beauty of their city. They were proud of their culture, as debauched as it was. And they were proud of the kind of religion they had. They were proud of the place that they occupied in the Roman and the Greek world. They reveled, in fact, in their immorality. In fact, the word Corinthian became synonymous and notorious for immorality. To live like a Corinthian became the way you would describe a person who lived without moral restraint. There are modern equivalents of that all around us today. And into this environment came Paul with the message of the cross. It seems like puny, puny work. But the only thing that undermines the pride of this world 
is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross strips away every, every pretension that a human being has and opens our lives that the, that the filth and the wrong can be taken away because it lurks in the recesses of the human mind. It breaks us and it humbles us and it forces us to look beyond ourselves for redemption. Wisdom won't do it. Flowery rhetoric and personal charisma won't do it, although the Corinthians later developed their own personality cult inside the church. The answer is being willing to know we are weak and fearful and inadequate in our own strength. It is not within us to save our world. When Paul hid behind the gospel of Christ and raised the standard of the cross high, things began to happen in Corinth. See, the cross was Paul's passion. And as I read it in the past week and looked at what Paul's message was and looked at how he explained himself, he said once, the, once Christ was raised high, the power of God began to be demonstrated out of the sewers. Corinth had plenty of them, especially moral sewers. Out of the sewers, people began arriving. Two letters in the New Testament in the New Testament describes and chronicles the issues that came into the Corinthian church. Hardened sailors walked in and bowed before Christ. It was an international church. From the steamy brothels came young prostitutes who were priestesses of Aphrodite, who was labeled as the goddess of love, but had never known there was a difference between love and lust. Very likely, if the prostitutes came, the pimps did too. They, they came in and walked out with the gospel. Drunkards came out of the taverns to investigate and found there was living water rather than the stuff they majored on. If you read Corinthians, you will find out that husbands stopped beating their wives. Thieves were convicted from their evil ways. Sexual deviants found deliverance from the sordid lifestyle that they, that they practiced, and idolaters found the true God. The rich and the poor came in at the same time, and in a year and a half, there was a thriving church that First and Second Corinthians tells me demonstrated all of the spiritual gifts, and Paul was no fly-fly-by-night evangelist. He just didn't grab their money and run. He stayed with them and taught them the word of God for a full year and a half, and it's good that he did because Corinth had every kind of problem that no church wants. But see, it points something out. When we open the floodgates of grace, we better be ready to deal with what walks in. We better develop the ability to not only let the cross be the means of redemption for people, but let the continuous preaching of the cross and the power of the Spirit be the way that people are discipled. There was a dimension of this dynamic Corinthian church that we need to want understand here. See, the growth of the church was rooted, and this is why it's so amazing. The growth of the church was rooted in what the Greeks called foolishness because it defied their philosophy. They couldn't understand why anyone would want to rise from the dead because the body was evil and death was actually good. It released you from your body 
And when they said Jesus rose from the dead, it was foolishness to them. The Jews saw the gospel as a stumbling block because it featured a Messiah who was crucified. How could God ever accomplish his will through someone who was not, who was not from the military and didn't ride over the enemies? And Paul didn't depend, he said, on his powers of speech. People were not saved by his, his ability to, to speak, not enticing words of man's wisdom, Paul says. He didn't depend on intellect totally. He didn't depend on emotion totally, but he depended on faith. You see, get the whole sentence. Don't just take the first three words I say. Faith doesn't save. Grace saves through faith. But it puts us in touch with God. Faith is given to us by God. He tells us that the cross of Christ is the only way to be reconciled to him. And God has to give us that redeeming faith to begin with. It's not something we're born with naturally or have. God provides it. In his grace, he gives us faith. Let me borrow archaic railway term terminology this morning. Some of you can still remember railways. Some of you can't. I rode the, the old Newfie bullet like it, was my, like it was my second home. Did for a long time with my father. Practically lived at times in a caboose or in an engine. Oh yeah, a caboose was the last train on the, on the, uh, the last car on the train. Some of you might not have seen one of them or know what I'm talking about here. But you should do some study on on what a railway in Newfoundland actually looked like. But let me put it, let me put it in this sense. Churches are stations where God's timetable, the operation, is disclosed. Preachers are station agents. We care for passengers. We help people make their reservations. Evangelists are conductors who go from car to car and station to station and preach the goodness of God. Deacons and trust trustees are workers who keep the railway yard. They operate the station building. They keep the rail cars in good running order. And in this church, quite a number of our people are cross-trained. So they do a variety of ministries. It's not unusual here for a deacon to preach. It's not unusual for them to lead. Not unusual for them to lead in the prayer meeting. Not unusual for them, for them to teach or to do any number of things that are done here. Quite a few multitaskers. Congregational members are signposts to God and caretakers of the yard. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are the three in one who own the railway and all the equipment. You can apply this to an, air, an airline as well, but I'm really not into that. Railways are my background. They give the time timetable. It's God's decision. He directs the operations by his spirit. He guarantees safe passage to your destination. There will be no derailments when God runs things. And he hands out retirement packages at the end of the line. That's sort of the way I understand life a little bit through railway eyes. See, John 3, 16 states, God gave Jesus to the world. And in the church age, we give people, we give people Jesus. That's our, that's our ministry. 
That's our message. When you boil it right down to its bare essence, what does everybody in this room have in common? We need Jesus. And we are, we are hopeless without him. Without him, there is no bright future for anybody. And like Paul, we preach him crucified as the means to reconcile us to God. Paul had the repentance team on his side. Repentance is a great word. Paul had the cross and the spirit, an inseparable pair that combined to win the hearts of human beings. God's wisdom is revealed in the cross. It is, not, it is not that Jesus stumbled into a crucifixion scene and died there. It is not that he made crucial errors in his life and was, it was condemned. It was God's plan that he would suffer and die on the cross to bring us to God. His wisdom, not his foolishness. God's spirit makes the truth of God's wisdom alive in the human heart. And when this powerful team finds a willing witness, lives are going to be transformed. When this message goes out there, when people are told about this, responses will occur. Now this preacher knows a little of the feelings of Paul. I am always in awe of the power of the word of God. I come to the pulpit every time I come just like Paul in fear and trembling. I know the weight that rests upon me when, when I know I have to proclaim the word of God. Yet I know it to be such a powerful book, far beyond anything I can say or anything I can do. I've spent my entire life producing words. And how futile words can be. But I also know the power of the cross and I know the power of the spirit for they're the twins that God used combined to bring me to him. They're what God used to bring you to him. How strange that preaching can accomplish that. Let's cut to the chase this morning as I conclude. We live in a modern Corinth. I don't know what you consider of your city, but the streets and alleys of this city teem with people who are crippled by the same sins that were prevalent in Corinth. Have an in-depth in chat with Sean Allen about some of the things that he does. And you'll find out about the seedier side of this city. Cornerbrook has its subcultures. It's rowdy sailors. It has its drug culture. And it has its nobodies in the sense that nobody knows them or spends any time with them because they've been tossed aside from a society that is adrift as much as ancient Corinth ever was. But you would say if you're from a different town, that's true of my town too. It's true of everywhere without Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is the only answer for the world today. But we need to prepare ourselves Church was never intended to be a holy club or a social organization. We'll have fellowship after the service is done this morning, and everybody is welcome. But that's not our total, that's not our total purpose here, just to gather a few people together. Some of the real purpose is being accomplished downstairs as children are gone to the way today, which is what Christians were originally called, people from the way, people of the way. 
We've got to pass on the faith to the generations that are coming. But what I'm concerned about is that the generations who exist don't know enough about it themselves. Church is a field hospital. Radical surgery often has to be done. Thankfully, you don't want me to do your surgery. Like I helped my uncle once do a cesarean section on a sheep that couldn't born her own lambs. Now the animal lived for a while, but it wasn't pretty. You don't want that, especially on any part of your body that's visible. Our word to you today is not that you should come in and dine with us, but anyone who comes to the church should be prepared to come in and die. I'm not talking about physical death either. That's what Corinthians had to do. Paul baptized so many of them in water. That's why I say they were Baptists. They died to sin. They were buried with Christ in baptism. The old man and all that he was stayed in the water. And baptism tells us that they rose to walk with Christ in newness of the spirit of life. The gospel is not a band-aid on a festering wound. Rather, it, it deals with the source of infection, which is sin. And it deals with it at its root. That's the power of the gospel. That's what should happen in Corinth and Cornerbrook and certainly Las Vegas. Church growing is hard, hard work. There's a photo of Paul that's taken from the new, from the new film about him. It took a toll on the Apostle Paul. Religious frustration can be draining. Battling for souls is hard, hard work. If you've got to live in that kind of environment, it can, it can test you. Being rejected is tough on the ego. There was a time when Paul almost despaired. And it's in our text. He battled with a thorn in the flesh. Paul was betrayed so often. He was beaten often. He was various, various times he was lonely. He had so many problems of his own. He could have easily settled on and said, I'm just going to sit back and wait for the coming of Jesus. Was Corinth too big a challenge for him? What challenge is too big for God when we come to him in our weakness and say, I am totally dependent on you for my strength? That's wisdom to do that. I can see Paul in our text today, one night weighing the matter after a hard day of teaching and pleading. He's borne his cross the entire day. It's a little like the Damascus Road for him all over again. And I think he must have felt alone. But the next moment, the presence of the Lord filled his room and Jesus spoke to him and said, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one is going to attack you and harm you. And look at why. I have many people in this city. That's my truth today. If there's something that I've wrung out of this passage and this experience and this city, it's that. Don't lose hope. Don't be defeated by what you face, but hear the voice of God and know the reason why he speaks. There are many people in this city. And he's just not saying there's a population here. There's a needy population. There are people who need Jesus Christ. And the only soul-saving agency that exists within our world is the church of Jesus Christ. I love this quote. Upon the primitive evangelism of the early church, God set his seal, confirming it with signs following and adding to the church daily so that the most rapid and far-reaching results ever known to history 
were achieved within one gen 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 generation with none of our modern facilities of transit and pub pub publication, A.T. Pearson says. And he adds this, the gospel flew from lip to lip until it touched the bounds of the Roman Empire. Within one century, one-to-one -one evangelism shook paganism to its core, and the priests of false faith saw with dismay their idol shrines forsaken. And thank God for a little bit of stuttering because it keeps me humble. Vision. Vision is needful today. See, we can focus on the problems and we can focus on the hurdles. And we can get caught up in the peripheral things of life. We can count ourselves out and say, I've just got too much to handle myself. But the truth is, there's a core in it out there. There are many people in this city. I think God has people in this city. If I did not believe that to be true, I would not for a moment assume to be your pastor. There are many wasted lives. There are people who are broken. There's a multitude of people, to use an earlier phrase, on the freeway to hell. They need to see a sign in the distance that warns them of the danger or someone has to hold up the standard of the cross in their lives and point them to Jesus Christ. So you have a church. And when the church does that and does it well, there's no force in the universe as powerful or as beautiful. Robert Moffat said this, great missionary of the past, we shall have all eternity in which to celebrate our victories but we have only one swift hour before the sunset in which to win again. 